So I was listening to the New York Times, The Daily Podcast this morning, and I don't know if you listen to that podcast. I'm kind of addicted to it. And part of the reason I like it is because it goes into depth into one story and only one story every single day. And it's usually something about something of note in the news. I mean, like really pressing, like things, something you really want to know a lot about. And it's the New York Times. So they have this massive team of journalists and researchers creating these stories. And this one, this morning, well, it was about a pretty terrifying move by Russia to mobilize some 175,000 soldiers on the border of Ukraine. There was a possible invasion of Ukraine coming. Now, why was Vladimir Putin about to order a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Was he going to do that? The reporter really couldn't say. He offered a lot of different theories and explanations and said that, well, you know, why would Russia bring about a war that could suck in much of Europe and even North America? He said that if you really want to understand Russian if you really want to understand what's going on, you have to understand Russian history. And he said there were three moments in particular. And, and the first one, well, that was in 1991. So we go back to 1991. And indeed, that was the year that Ukraine declared independence from a collapsing Soviet Union. Now, folks in the West, we understand that the collapse of the Soviet Union is like a liberation from a dysfun dysfunctional totalitarian state. But Vladimir Putin, well, he understood 1991 as the year Russia's rightful empire disintegrated. And it wasn't Russia's fault. It was due to the meddling of NATO and some corrupt leaders. Now, the cornerstone of that Russian empire was Ukraine, a nation that shared a political and cultural heritage with Russia. Putin and other Russian nationalists have never really accepted Ukraine's sovereignty. And in their eyes, it's just part of greater Russia. And even though a majority of Ukrainians don't want to be ruled by Russia, Russia seems convinced that they should. Um, many Ukrainians are fearful of this, and, and for good reason. Because when you look back on the history of the Soviet Union, Moscow often had a very heavy hand in Ukraine. There was repression, there was censorship, there was abuse, starvation. Everyday citizens were often suspected of anti-Soviet activities that could be arrested. And what were these anti-Soviet activities? And how did the Soviet authorities gather information about their own citizens? Well, this was before the internet, of course. And so what did people do? They communicated through the mail. Yeah. Letters. People sent letters. They wrote about all kinds of things. Just stuck the letter in the mail. They wrote about the weather. They wrote about illnesses, food, annoying relatives, and yes, politics. But because people often understood, as we do today, that there is no absolute privacy, that someone may be watching or reading or surveilling you, people often wrote in code. But this just made the NKVD, and that's the forerunner to the KGB, the secret police of the Soviet Union, that much more determined to understand what people were saying. 
So they seized people's letters. They read them. They censored them. They never de got delivered to their, to their intended audience. And it turns out there's a specific term for that, for stealing people's mail, examining it thoroughly, maybe not returning it. And that term is a term I never heard before, but thanks to a couple of enterprising young, stu young students, I, know, I now know what it's called. It's called perlustration. Perlustration, maybe you've never heard that word. It means it is defined by the dictionary as to, quote, go through and examine thoroughly to survey. And today on the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 FM, we are going to do an episode on perlustration, on History X, the show about what they didn't teach you at school. Yeah. This is the show that is not on the syllabus, Perlustration, not on the syllabus, and yet we have access now to millions, millions of documents that were perlustrated by Soviet authorities. And a couple of students of mine uh, a while back uh, got an opportunity to actually see into the archives of perlustrated letters. I had a student, Abby, who will be talking to you from Ukraine. She recorded part of this in Ukraine after she had been to these archives and read some of these perlustrated letters. And what she had to say was really interesting. She'll talk about why things were perlustrated, what kinds of things they found in them, and how it connects to what we do today. You'll, As you'll see, it's not some distant historical epic. There are connections to privacy and surveillance today. Let's get to the show. We now live in a society which we believe to be free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of opinion. However, in reality, censorship is still very relevant in today's modern context. The internet opens up a world of possibilities, but at what cost? We may not have KGB agents spying on us, watching our every move. But what about all those Zoom calls we've been on? Who is watching those and listening to our conversations? And what about targeted advertising that gains information about you based on your Google searches and social media posts? Have you ever had an ad of a specific item pop up after you've been talking about it with someone, but never actually looked anything up on your phone? The surveillance is there. Who knows what they're doing with the information they collect from us? And that's exactly what we're exploring with these KGB archives from the Soviet Union. What kind of information is in these archives? What are the recurring themes and topics of the letters that were confiscated by the secret police during the Soviet Union? And what is constituted as anti-Soviet, according to them? And did censorship of free speech die with the Soviet Union? Or does it still exist today? Let's find out. Over 2 million personal letters were perlustrated by the NKVD in 1946 during the month of January alone. Thousands of these letters were confiscated and hidden in the archives of the Secret Service building in Kyiv, Ukraine. Then in April 2015, the world was suddenly given access to the inner world of the Soviet Union and all of its secrets. Живу очень плохо. В комнате холодно. 
уже несколько дней не раздеваются. The conditions are horrible. My room is cold. I haven't changed my clothes in days. I walk down the path trying to find coal for the fire. The NKVD stopped me. My child is going to school hungry, without proper clothes or shoes. I went to the secret police, to Turgenev, to ask him for help, but he refused. This letter was filed under complaints from families of military personnel in a monthly report from the NKVD. The NKVD stands for Narodny Komisariat Vnutrinich Diel SSSR, which translates to the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs of the USSR. In 1954, they changed their name to the KGB. From 1922 until 1991, the secret police collected an immense amount of information, including millions of letters that were confiscated, reported, and placed into classified files. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, those files were sealed away in closed archives, inaccessible to the public. However, in 2015, the KGB archives housed in Kiev, Ukraine, were suddenly declassified. The opening of these archives led to a flood of information that had been formerly unavailable. This information revealed a long history of repression, starvation, criminal negligence from the state, harsh living conditions, and the misery of the population. The files of the confiscated letters were often considered to have anti-Soviet statements, information or statements that the Soviet regime did not want spreading internally or being exported abroad internationally. The underlying purpose of this censorship was to control. Without control, there could be no power. We sat down with Dr. Yelena Pokasian over Zoom. She's a Russian professor at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, who grew up in the Soviet Union and immigrated to Canada almost 20 years ago. She has dedicated much of her time looking into personal correspondence that was confiscated by the NKVD, particularly during the 1930s and 40s. It started uh, a few years ago when uh, I was working on another project, and it was Love Letters. And the project was dedicated to uh, personal letters of Ukrainian immigrants in uh, mostly Alberta. And uh, when I was uh, asking uh, around for the uh, for old family personal letters, um, and people were saying, you know what? If only you would know how it was uh, back then. We didn't really get much letters because all the letters were confiscated by the KGB. Dr. Pogosian expands on this with a letter she had found to be particularly fascinating. I think it's one of the letters which uh, were written to Germany. So, and letters saying that probably between relatives and letters saying that I heard that uh, you, uh, probably brother, uh, is planning to come back to our city. Please don't do it. Life here is not nice. However, if you will come, bring any kind of closings. Anything will help because right now it's in the middle of the summer and it's plus 30. And all I have is a winter coat. And this is what I'm wearing on my bare body. So the person doesn't have anything but this randomly found, I don't know how, survived a uh, winter coat. And for me, it was uh, really striking. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, there is a lot of letters about hardship.
Much of this hardship that she refers to started in 1927, when the death of Lenin launched a power struggle within the Bolshevik Party of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. Although there were many strong candidates to take Lenin's place, it was Joseph Stalin who claimed control. After engaging in a process of eliminating internal opposition within the party, Stalin consolidated his power through intimidation, terrorizing political dissidents, and placement of allies in positions of prestige. In understanding this, it's important to touch on how the surveillance, or prolistration, was done. When you see documents, and Abby, you probably already know that, it's unbelievable. It's like, uh, in May 1939, 127,000 letters were illustrated. So it's huge amounts. So uh, how it was working? So uh, there was, so every, um, Post office uh, kind of had connecting office and it was perlustration office. And in this perlustration office, all correspondence went through. Then uh, letters that were to some extent suspicious were separated. Censors were then deciding, can this letter be just censored? You know, just a few lines blackened and then sent to the addressee or it should be confiscated. And for all the confiscated letters, monthly reports were compiled. And this is first what you see in the archives today. You have monthly reports. It is interesting to note that the Soviet Union contained a mirage of ethnicities, cultures, and therefore languages. So some of these letters had to be translated from Ukrainian or Belarusian to Russian, which was the national language at the time. If you have original letter and you have Russian translation, you can see how translation could be very ideological. And as letter being translated, it's been interpreted in particular terms already established for illustration. These letters were being interpreted in a way that served the secret police's goals. I can't help but draw parallels between this and how our online data may be interpreted by advertising companies to fit their needs. Is this how our posts and tags are evaluated to find evidence of our personality of interests in order to understand what ad is most relevant to us? Дорогая подруга, я пишу тебе сейчас письмо, а за окном творится что-то страшное. Dear friend, I'm writing a letter to you, but outside my window something scary is happening. The war is over, but it is still going on here. Criminals could find me at any minute and take me like they took our teacher, Elena Shevchenko. My life is hanging on by a thread. I don't know if I will live to see tomorrow. I have a horrible feeling that I will never see you again. What is happening right now is even worse than what happened last year. Letter after letter about basic needs not being met in the Soviet Union. This is somewhat what we expected to find with our modern understanding of events such as the Holodomor and Stalin's totalitarian rule. On the other hand, there were in fact less affected parts of the Soviet Union that did not experience this oppression to the same extent. Dr. Pogosyan was born in Estonia in the 1960s and describes a very different, much more hopeful life in the USSR. Estonia was a special place. It was much more open. In Estonia, people were not anxious to find enemy. Everybody were uh, kind of relaxed in terms of you know, surveillance. But my mother's second husband worked in the KGB. 
and he worked in a very special uh, place, the place where he did some simple tasks, but he worked on the machine which was destroying prohibited literature, confiscated literature. And naturally, he was bringing all the stuff home. I think from her experiences, you can really see how the USSR developed since Stalin's era, where by the 1960s, prolustration was just a secondary thing tacked on to everyday life, almost normalized at that point. We asked Dr. Brigassian directly if she had any personal experiences with surveillance. Of course, from a very early age as a university student, I know that there was a surveillance. For instance, when I was in the first year, and probably because my stepfather was working for KGB, I was approached by our uh, dean, and we had a, a smaller faculty. So the dean was not somebody far, far away. The dean uh, more or less knew most of the students. So, and she wanted me to have a conversation with her. I was a good student, so I, I didn't know what she wants from me. And I knew it all, but at the same time, I was naive enough. So uh, basically, she wanted me to tell her what all my lectures were about. Uh, naturally, I said that, oh, I, uh, I don't remember. But uh, uh, it, it was a shock. I didn't expect to face this that early at the university. So it's 2015. The public suddenly has access to an unimaginable amount of Soviet secrets, and information is power. During the entire reign of the Soviet Union, secrecy was the most important constraint on social life. This applied to the entire bureaucratic structure, more specifically to the collection and archiving of information on the public. However, many former Soviet spaces witnessed an opening of the archives only to have access withdrawn a few years later. A government's policy towards historically sealed archives is an indication of its commitment to transparency, as well as the development of a future democratic civilization. We also interviewed Dr. David Marples over Zoom. He is a renowned Soviet historian at the University of Alberta, whose current work focuses on Stalinist persecutions in Belarus during the late 1930s to 1940s. Since the KGB archives have been closed in Belarus since 1994, we asked him how he's able to conduct his research. Belarus is in a more difficult situation, I think, than Ukraine, because um, the national archives are open, but the KGB archives are still closed. And they've been closed since 1994. So they've been closed throughout the presidency of Lukashenko. And um, it puts some restrictions on what you can actually get hold of, obviously. It's still very secretive and it's still hard to find precise information, including even names. Some of Dr. Marple's findings are quite interesting. For example, the many of the people persecuted are of non-Belarusian background, namely Polish and Latvian people living in the country. That could potentially be a huge indication of Stalin's attitude towards outsiders as being intrinsic threats to his Soviet nation. And in turn, it also explains why he wanted his people to have the least amount of communication with the outside world as possible, leading to mass confiscation of letters. Unfamiliar with this territory, we probed Dr. Marples to describe the difference between KGB and National Archives. 
when Stalin ordered the execution of people, it usually the file ended up in the KGB archives because it's much more sensitive. So things that were top secret or highly secret would end up in the KGB archives. And yet you can still find stuff in the National Archive, but specifically the purges would be found in the KGB archives because the KGB, well, the NKVD as it was then, was in charge of that. And so it would naturally go into their archives. In the Soviet archives, things are quite clearly documented. There may be, um, you know, for example, people who were studying the Ukrainian famine, Holodomor of 1933, have never actually found any smoking gun. They never found any evidence of Stalin saying, let's go sort out the Ukrainians and eliminate uh, all the troublesome ones. We've never found a document like that. But in the purges, it's quite clear that you know, you've got these people who are considered anti-people, anti-regime, uh, associated with people that Stalin didn't get along with anymore, like Zinoviev or Trotsky or Kamenev. And everything is clearly laid out there, what they're supposed to have done. And also the penalty, you know, whether it's it usually is military tribunal shooting by execution is the most common one that you see. During the purge years, which Dr. Marples is describing, it was common for show trials to be held. The aim of these trials was to have the accused confess to their anti-party or anti-Soviet behavior and actions, and specifically to name others who were involved in said activity. Frequently, people were tortured for confessions, and if they did not relent, their trial would be held in secret. Yeah, it really just reminds me of how in some nations today, like China, North Korea, or even Russia still, will do anything to make people who are against them look guilty even without much or any evidence at all. Since Dr. Marples is limited in what archive material he can work with, we asked him to comment on the willingness of people to speak about their lives during this time. It really varies. I mean, some people don't want to talk at all. You find that in the very elderly population who can still remember the Soviet period quite clearly. They don't want to talk about it, but the younger generations are quite anxious to find out the background to what's happened to their, I guess, great-grandparents and even great-great-grandparents sometimes. And in theory, they're supposed to be able to um, get permission to go and look, in the, even in the KGB archives, if it's your direct ancestor. But in practice, that's not been very easy to do, and um, people aren't let in very easily. I was surprised to learn about the extent to which the Belarusian government is willing to obstruct the search for answers about the past. In his current research, Dr. Marples works a great deal with political opposition groups, as they are the ones probing for these investigations to be done. This creates issues for the individuals involved. Frequently, they are under a lot of pressure from the government, and it can become quite challenging for them to even stay in the country. In Belarus today, you've got different things going on. And there's been um, a long-term mass protest against the government since the last election, which has become very violent and many people have simply left the country. So in many respects, I don't even know if I would get back in right now. I mean, I was banned for seven years, so it wouldn't be a big surprise if I was banned again now. It is really fascinating that from the evidence we have of the Belarusian government that they operate so similar to the Soviet era. 
creating blacklists of dissidents, obscuring information from the public, and not even bothering to rebrand the KGB, because our secret police is still called KGB to this day. The way that Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine have dealt with their KGB archives and the decision to open or close them to the public really reflects the state that each nation is in since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Russia still has millions of files from the Soviet era taking up space in archives in Moscow, yet they have never been seen by the public. Belarus, on the other hand, did open their archives in Minsk, but then their first and the only president, Alexander Lukashenko, known as the last dictator of Europe, decided to close them once again in 1994. Ukraine opened their KGB archives in Kiev in 2015 and has allowed public access to them since then, which really shows their dedication to have an open and honest discussion about their Soviet past. Yet they continue to move forward, away from the system that crippled their nation for so long. When we consider the fact that proliferation in the USSR was an act of surveillance with the goal of controlling the information that they sent or received, shocking parallels can be drawn between it and modern algorithms online. Algorithms on various internet platforms monitor our searches and feed us information advertisements. It begins a cycle where internet users are subjected to highly specific content, which makes fact-checking Facebook articles, for example, nearly impossible. Additionally, It becomes a bit freaky when you mention a product to someone and then bam, it shows up on your feed. I think this really highlights how much our personal accounts, Google searches, and what we've been putting up on social media are being heavily monitored online. It's like what Dr. Pogessian was saying about the perlustration of letters. They had an intended audience and an unintended audience, just like what we post online or say in private Zoom calls. We have no way of knowing the full extent of how our information will be used, or who is essentially accessing it, or who it's being sold to for what purpose. If you think about how you're listened to and targeted with specific ads based on what you say, that unintended audience is violating your privacy, similarly to how it was in the USSR. They violated the author's privacy during perlustration of their personal letters. There are ethical concerns when it comes to who is allowed to listen and use information gained from private conversations. When it comes to these confiscated letters, in fact, the ethical concerns are very similar. As a researcher, it doesn't really matter uh, what you are studying, but in this particular case, it's a very specific situation. You are constantly asking yourself, where is this uh, kind of fine line? What is ethical to use for research, especially in this particular situation. Because uh, you see, first of all, these people uh, wrote their letters, never thinking that somebody else will be reading it. After that, this rule was violated by the KGB illustrators, censors, who were reading this mail. They never expressed any wish. So we don't know. Maybe they would be fine with that. But people who wrote those letters never wanted those letters to be preserved, for instance. And now those letters are preserved. They are read, they are preserved, and now we are reading them again. So the question is, where is this balance? Are we really allowed to read these letters for this uh, better academic good? So this uh, academic good, this academic idea of uh, learning uh, things without borders, how should we make this material public? 
what should we include and what should we not include? She raises extremely interesting and important points, and I can't help but wonder if there will be similar conversations in the future about ethical concerns surrounding the powers of technology. Just because someone can access another person's device and listen or watch what they're doing, does that make it okay? Is that ethically alright, or does it violate their personal right to privacy as a human being? Think about these questions the next time you post on social media or have a private conversation and notice a related advertisement appear on your screen. Countries such as China and North Korea undeniably practice surveillance of their citizens, but don't think that you're not affected by it because you live in a quote-unquote free country. Invasive surveillance exists as long as you continue using the internet. Just like the privacy of personal letters were violated constantly in the USSR, our privacy on the internet is also being violated all the time. So keep that in mind the next time you go to share something online, or even send a private email. Don't let the realization of surveillance scare you, but also don't let yourself be ignorant of it. Like we mentioned earlier, information is power, so hold on to that power for as long as you can. You have been listening to History X on the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 FM in Amiskwichiwa Sky Gun Treaty 6 Territory, Edmonton. Now, uh, this episode is a special production that I gotta give lots of thanks to. Special thanks to Simran Graywall for producing the episode, re-recording some of the episodes, Yelena Pogosian for being interviewed, as as well as David Marples, uh, associate producer Sabrina Tharani, and my two enterprising students who went out and made this happen, Abby Duar and Kate Hayward. Thank you so much for this incredible insight into surveillance. And uh, thank you for listening. We will see you next time on History X, the show that is not on the syllabus. Bye now. <laughs>